This is the Talk Editions Podcast. On today's episode, vocalist and composer Jeffrey Gavitt speaks with me, Charlotte Mundy, vocalist of Talk, and Taylor Brooke, technical director of Talk, about microtonality, collaboration, and approaching the impossible. This is the first of three episodes celebrating the first birthday of our album, Star Maker Fragments. We recorded Star Maker Fragments in the early pandemic. We released it on March 3rd, 2021. And as of now, in March 2022, we still have yet to perform the piece live. But we wanted to do something to celebrate the album. So since Taylor Brooke, who of course composed the music on the album, makes such wonderful use of different tuning systems in his music, we decided to devote three episodes to talking about tuning and microtonality with different guests. Jeffrey Gavitt is the perfect first guest for this series because not only is he an expert in performing Western microtonal music, he's also a close, long-term collaborator and friend of Taylor's. Jeff has also performed with Alarm Will Sound, Meredith Monk, Roomful of Teeth, and many other ensembles, including his own groups, Load Bang and Ekmele's. And as a composer, his works have been performed at the Bang on a Can Summer Festival, Issue Project Room, and The Stone. His work involves computer-aided composition and various systems of microtonality. And Jeff has premiered six different works by Taylor so far. I think we should start by asking Taylor, can you tell us how you and Jeff first started working together? I have a memory that I'm not 100% certain of, and Jeff, you can confirm it for All me. Right. When I first moved to New York in 2011, that first semester where I began to study at Columbia University in the, in the music department there, Anthony Chung organized a microtonality symposium. And I believe that I met you briefly in the elevator at the Columbia Music yeah, Building. Yeah, I'm remembering that too. We just sort of like, hey, are you going to this thing too? Hi. Hey, you, you look kind of weird. Are yeah. you going to this microtonal thing? Wow, that's so wild that that was actually the first way that you met was. <laughs> yeah, that was that was great. That was uh, Chris Trapani talked about a piece of his Toby Twining. Yes, I remember um, the Toby Twining presentation. I think the the meat of the conversation I had with you was kind of talking about his system of accidentals and how it could become so unwieldy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets super wild in the, in the incredible Chrysalid Requiem. There's a movement that modulates so far out that the accidentals proliferate to the degree that he just decides that Rather than a natural being 900 cents away from C, he just crosses out all the accidentals at a certain point and just says, uh, A is now 888 cents away from C or whatever. So he can just get rid of the accidentals for a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, obviously his his system does work yeah, but yeah. Uh, you run into these issues with any kind of accidental system and microtonality his is well suited for voice it yeah. seems to me whereas like something like the ben johnson accidentals are very well suited for strings yeah and he's using the ben johnson accidentals he's using a, an, a version of those right he's sort of ex expanded upon them yeah we met briefly at that and then that spring you wrote a piece for ekmelis for a columbia composers show right where we did motorman fragments Yes. That was when we first really got to know one another and we first worked together. And this was on a piece, 
again through my school, through Columbia, for one of their student composer concerts. They they hired Jeff and his group ECMLS, plus a few freelancer musicians. I remember Kobe von Kauenberg was in the ensemble. Russell Greenberg was in the ensemble. A couple others. Carlos Cordaro, our mutual former bandmate, Charlotte. Yes. That's where I met him, was on this piece, first piece of Taylor's also. Wow. Yeah. It was a wonderful experience working with Jeff on this piece because this was the first experience I had working in New York City. And it was also the first time where I was working with a performer that knew, uh, actually knew much more than I did about microtonality. And this was true of a number of the musicians I ended up working with in New York. And I, I had come from experiences of kind of having to teach the performers about microtonality, making concessions around it, um, you know, good concessions. It's not a complaint, but more like this person is sort of meeting me halfway on, on something they've never done before. Whereas with Jeff, it was sort of like, oh, I get this. This is this harmony. You know, I speak your language of fraction notation, but we can talk about sense, even identifying possible errors, <laughs> you know, in, in <laughs> what I've written. And so that was um, that was amazing. And that led to Jeff asking me to write for ECMLS, uh, the sextet on its own, and us collaborating with Loadbang, us working together on all these different projects. So Motorman Fragments, tell me about that. So that's different from the Motorman sextet? Yeah, so... Motorman, uh, I'll just take a step back because there's sort of an ecosystem of Motorman pieces that I've written. So yeah, Motorman is, I believe it's 1974 was when it was first published. It's a sort of experimental science fiction novel by um, David Ole, who's an American writer who is heavily influenced by William S. Burroughs. A very different writing, but there's definitely some of that in there. And I sort of had this idea that over the course of many pieces... I would set the entire text of this book, which is, you know, it's maybe 150 pages or something like this. And so the first piece was an overture, entirely instrumental, but that sort of set the, it you know, if it was ever performed as an opera, all these pieces together, it could be the introductory piece. And then Motorman Fragments, which is the piece where, that Jeff and I first collaborated upon, um, was setting mostly correspondences between two characters, Moldinki and Dr. Bernhardt, which are two you know, so the the protagonist and then this sort of weird uh, doctor character that's always operating on him. So that was basically what that piece was about. So these different Motorman pieces set different parts of the text. Cool. Let's move back and talk about how you two nerds first got into microtonal music. <laughs> what was your first exposure to it knowing that, of course, we all experience sounds that are outside of the equal temperament system all the time. Right. But what was your first introduction to that way of thinking about music? My background musically is choral, a lot of it. And in my studies at Westminster Choir College, where I did my undergrad, even when you have an accompanist who plays parts for people when you're learning the music, people usually wouldn't give you all of the notes of a chord at the beginning of a piece. They would just give you the tonic or a note that you're supposed to get your note from with the idea that you'll be somehow more in tune or that it's less in tune if you if you play all the notes in the piano and then the choir comes in. And I remember being pretty confused by that. So the piano is not in tune, like the piano is the reference. So what is more in tune? And that sort of started my curiosity. What does it mean to be in tune? And of course it means a different thing in a different moment with a different instrument and a different piece of music. But my interest in it led down the path 
of just intonation, which is instead of using tempered tuning, like on the piano, where all the, the steps are equally sized, just tuning relates frequencies by simple ratios. So you can, especially as a singer, sort of lock in the tuning. You can hear when you're in tune and sort of lean into it in a way that I found both achievable and uh, just pleasant. Like I like singing music that feels really in tune. Yeah, it feels so, so good. It's like, it's an undeniable feeling. So how did you get from that question of like, okay, so what does it mean to be in tune? Like, where did you go to answer that question for yourself? It was sort of scattered. I didn't have, you know, there's not a great single place to go. I remember I picked up the the Harry Parch Genesis of Music, but I really couldn't understand it very well. Yeah, that makes so, sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I ended up exploring repertoire for a while until I found things that really spoke to me, like hearing overtone chords in sort of early spectral music really made a big impression on me. Stimmung made a big impression on me. And also the connection to, I I wasn't in this, this scene myself, but I had friends who were really into barbershop music. And they, of course are really into tuning, you know, the the style has so many dominant seventh chords in it, and they're all tuned four, five, six, seven. And they they talk about that. They talk about how low your sevenths need to be. And that's a, a very approachable, popular music style that cares about microtones, you know, and the people who perform it think about it that way. And Taylor, how about you? How did you get into microtonality? I think the my first, the first time I was aware of tuning things differently than than on the piano was I forget how I learned about this but basically the frustration of tuning my guitar and figuring out why I could never tune it by ear in a way that I was satisfied with so basically so this would have been high school and so you tune the guitar in fourths um you know e a d g and then you have a major third to b and then the b has another fourth up to E. So you have the high and low strings as E. And so you have to temper your third. And so I would tune the third by ear and then the high E would be out of tune. And then I, so then I would tune the high E first and and, and then there would be a problem with the B, right? Because that, that, that's a relationship with the fifth there, which is very obvious. And so I don't know if someone explained it to me or where I re- realized it, but that was sort of the, the, the thing that made me understand what temperament was and that there was you know back then I thought oh well this isn't pure tuning like I thought of it just intonation as like the correct tuning I don't really think that anymore but there is something as you two said sort of undeniable about the pleasure especially of singing in tune or or even you know playing I was a played guitar and violin so playing the violin in tune or the or the guitar in tune uh, though it's it is more satisfying with sustained instruments, I think, and so that that was my first sort of understanding of it, and I was immediately attracted to it. And then when I decided f- for some reason that I wanted to compose music, I knew it was something that I wanted to explore and incorporate into my music. And so I did my undergraduate degree at McGill. This would have been two thousand three to through two thousand seven, and um, at that time there was a a decent amount of spectral music that was being listened to and sometimes performed at McGill. It was sort of just like a known quantity spectral music, whereas American Microtonality, a la Parch, James Tenney, and and others was not really known there. So then I looked into spectralism and found that quite interesting, but eventually came around to 
The Well-Tuned Piano by Lamont Young, which was really the piece that made me uh, want to sort of use just intonation as a starting point for everything I do in terms of what I write. And so I tend to approach microtonality very different from piece to piece, but there, uh, there's still sort of this basic just intonation framework that I, that I start with. It's wild how on one hand playing really in tune feels right sometimes. You can kind of feel when something is in or out of alignment kind of in tuning. But on the other hand, it can be really difficult, especially for people trained in an equal temperament system, can be really difficult to notate or communicate with people about the kind of tuning you want. How do you navigate that line of communicating sort of between traditions or between ways of thinking about tuning? Yeah, no, that's something I think about a lot because of course, uh, as a composer, that, that's the question of how do you communicate what you've written to the performer, right? It's like, it's a notation question, but it's one that's intertwined with my, my intention versus the performer's training versus the sort of construct of equal temperament that everyone has devoted so much of their training to perfecting. Um, but at the same time, both of you have experienced in your choral training singing, you know, thirds in tune is like the most common thing, right? And so a brass player will do that, a string quartet will do that. Basically everyone except for a piano player or another tempered instrument will do that as part of their standard training at some point. And so you can tap into that, but where it gets really interesting for me, these tuning things, are some of the the problems that you run into when you modulate or when you want to differentiate between a nine over eight major second versus like a 10 over nine interval, you know, which is the difference between, I guess, the, the just major third and the just major second in the overtone series. And so those are two different whole steps. And so that's where it gets, that's where you need someone like Jeff who understands what I'm talking about when I say this to be able to interpret that. And so my approach is to just, is to try to understand where, if, if I'm collaborating with someone, to understand what their approach to tuning is. I remember working with, or rather being coached in a piece that I was working on by Antti Kartanen, the cellist, and his approach to quarter tones uh, and microtones was very physical, right? Because he's playing the cello. And so, you know, if you want to play the quarter tone, you just put your finger in between where you normally do, right? Which is, um, it's an abomination if you are being really fine-tuned about everything like in an extreme way, but it's also a great starting point. It's a very practical starting point. And so if I'm working with a performer who's at that place, I will maybe approach things a little bit differently in terms of how I communicate to them. But, but yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting problem, I'd say. But there's a certain luxury to working with Talk Ensemble or Jeff or Jack or Ted or these other groups that really understand microtonality. And it's, I think it's becoming more and more common. It, it's a major sea change from when I was an undergraduate student, at least 20 years ago. I think my first memory of really questioning tuning and thinking about tuning was when I moved to New York to do my master's at MSM and I heard In Vain by Gilbert oh, yeah. Koss. <laughs> Hearing that piece was so mind-blowing and such a visceral experience. I hadn't really thought before then about tuning in a critical way. I, you know, I had had lots of voice lessons and I had had piano lessons, but I had never really thought every day consistently, how do I play this instrument in tune? 
So I think when I first started trying to perform microtonal music, I was definitely coming from that place of like, okay, I'm just going to try to sing a note in between C and C sharp if you want me to sing C right. quarter sharp. Yeah, and that's what is actually in uh, Ben Johnston's scores that like we've done the Sonnets of Desolation, the eight-voice piece he wrote for Swingle Singers. It's a super complicated piece tuning-wise, but in the preface where he describes the precise meaning of all of the symbols, he also says... Uh, just learn it as if all those symbols aren't there and then like gradually correct until uh, you eliminate beats in the tuning and it sounds really good. You know, right. even even someone who's working as specifically and as, and as sort of pioneeringly as Ben Johnson, that's the approach that he recommended. Mm -hmm. It takes so much time to get it into your body, the relationship between a new way of notating something and a new sound or feeling. Maybe that just is the best way to learn at first. Yeah, I always make these mock-ups, these yep. computer versions of entire scores, because, you know, if I'm learning a new piece, I'm going to play it at the piano. And if I can't play the score at the piano, I'll figure out a way to, to hear the score, especially with unfamiliar harmonies. So I got pretty good, actually, primarily because of Taylor's piece, the Motorman Sextet, of figuring out how are we going to really hear all of these complex harmonies as they go by. So I ended up MIDI sequencing and tuning the entire piece as playback on the computer just with MIDI sounds so that I could know what the harmonies were. And that's that's what I'll do generally with a, a very complex score with a lot of tuning changes or I have microtonal keyboard setups that I can use to play things back in rehearsal because I think you just need to, you need to go back to rote learning at a certain point with microtones. You need to be able to hear a new thing and it needs to be able to be repeated to you. And I can't always trust that if someone says, what does that sound like that I'm going to sing the 13th partial exactly accurately or whatever, but I've got my keyboard. <laughs> and I, I, I think that that's usually the quickest way. It's ironic that you started thinking about tuning as like, oh, the piano's not in tune. What does that mean? And so now you've just found ways to have like an in-tune keyboard at your disposal. Exactly. The circle is closed now. What programs do you use to do that in case there are listeners who want to also use those tools? For fully sequencing scores, I actually just use an old version of Sibelius for MIDI sequencing because I've always engraved music in that and I'm really quick in putting things into it. And then I uh, calculate the the pitch bend MIDI data with a little Python script I made. And then I just manually copy in the tuning for every note. That's a horrific pain to do. It takes forever and it's very difficult to proofread. Dorico is a new, newish music notation software that actually will play back equal tempered microtones accurately with sort of custom accidentals and transpose them accurately and everything. So that's a shortcut you can use if you're especially in equal temperament, although people have set up for just tunings as well. And then for playing things in a rehearsal as a reference, like on a keyboard, I'll use Scala, which is the sort of OG tuning software that is very, very deep and very flexible and also a little janky, but you can set up any kind of tuning in it. And then for pieces in just intonation, I'll, I'll generally use Mark Sabat's 31 limit Helmholtz LS calculator and organ synthesizer. So you can just put input the accidentals that you want and bind any tuning to any key on a MIDI keyboard. And you have a little like draw bar organ to decide on the timbre that you want. And you can switch between tuning presets really quickly. So we've used that a lot in, in rehearsal where I'll just have a mark in the score, like move to the next tuning preset at bar 35 or whatever. So I can, I can sort of continue to play along even if the tuning is changing rapidly in a piece. 
So cool. Is Mark Sabat's thing available online, like on his yeah, website? Yeah, it's free. It's on it's on his website. Yeah, plainsounds.org. So you can just you can just download that and run it. Uh, it's it's written in Max MSP, and you can run it with runtime. So it's free. Taylor, do you have anything to add to like tools that you like to use to hear unusual tunings or? You know, I think Jeff is much more advanced than I am in this way because he has to actually do it, whereas I can sort of imagine it and then forget it. I use very little playback when I'm writing. Uh, sometimes I will try to sketch stuff out in a DAW, and for that I'll I'll use Piano Tech because the tuning settings in Piano Tech, which is a VST piano instrument, you can change the tunings and save presets of tunings really quickly, and it's it sounds very good. Like it's a very also a very good sounding VST instrument. So that's generally what I use to sketch things out. Sometimes I'll pick up my violin, but that's about it. It's too bad that I learned to uh, notate with Finale because I find it. I tried to switch to Dorico because of these tuning possibilities, and I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. It was too starting from square one for me. But I would say if anyone is listening who is beginning to compose with microtones and they haven't settled in on you know the finale versus sibelius versus dorico you know choosing between those i would say dorico is way way ahead in terms of tuning stuff and i'm thinking of another practice that has been really helpful to me in becoming more comfortable with performing microtonal music and that is that a lot of composers will make some kind of a backing track or an electronics component to a piece that will have some of the um, pitches inside of it so that the performers can sing or play along with these very precise pitches. That certainly happens in Star Maker Fragments. And I'm thinking of a piece that I recorded with Jeff as a member of Ekmele's. Um, we released this piece by Christopher Trapani called End Words back in January 2020 on our album A Howl That Was Also a Prayer. And that piece uses very beautifully and effectively, I think, a sort of pre-constructed track made of samples of the singers of Ekmele's, of us performing these very specific pitches that Chris knew that he wanted in the final piece. Yeah, in, in Chris's piece, the second movement is just a quarter tone structure that's kind of gnarly but we have samples of ourselves playing back through the speakers so chris recorded about what do we do like three hour sessions with him charlotte mm -hmm. yeah three out maybe four hours they were super grueling just recording samples of ourselves so that he could make uh electronic parts that that used our own voices and then play them back in the piece so we have tuning references that are actually just ourselves and then the, in the third movement we have this sort of like bubbling short attacks of our own voices as well as big sustained gongs and things that set up the new tuning centers in the piece. Chris really wanted us to be, he wanted to record us actually singing like perfectly in tune with some specific pitches. It's actually kind of difficult to get a voice to sing really precisely in tune. I mean, I guess with any instrument, but I think with voice, it's especially not something that we're often asked to do. Yeah, and there's there's an element of the long sustain that we we're having to do to get like really nice long samples that didn't waver in pitch at all. I always yeah. compare holding one long, long, long note like that to the punishment of holding up a, a stack of books at arm's length. 
It's like, it's fine. I can do it. But after a little while, you start to shake a little bit. And instead of it being your arms and your shoulders, it's, you know, muscles that fit on a, a quarter or a nickel that we're having to hold perfectly steady. Yeah, it's like a ballet dancer, like holding a perfectly still, like on point position or something. It's like right. Really difficult. <laughs> Jeff, you were mentioning um, how much effort can go into preparing a score. I know that you've done that a lot for Ecmeles, the vocal group that we both sing in and that you run. And I'm guessing you do that for other projects too. And I think it's a kind of invisible labor but it's so crucial to the musical ecosystem in new york that oh, thank you when people do are willing to do that sort of invisible labor to help a whole ensemble like execute a piece well and there is a tension in the work that we do in new york that we want to be pushing boundaries and and trying new things and doing exciting work and also there's no time for anything and <laughs> you're doing one thing and then you're running to the next yeah so I've found that what's critical in getting my head into a piece requires a lot of sort of scaffolding work for making a, a piece happen. So I'm working a lot right now on some load bang pieces that are coming up that have a lot of rapid tempo shifts. And we're not going to be able to be in the same room for a long time working on it. So I've been making click tracks for a lot of things for rehearsal and practice. I've been making mock-ups of pieces. So when I'm working on something, I'll, I'll go between traditional practice of playing the notes for myself and making sure that I'm singing everything in tune and then singing along with a mock-up of the whole thing or conducting along with the click track and singing my part. Just trying to have as many avenues in of understanding of the piece as possible before we all get in the room together, I think is just crucial. I mean, it would be amazing if we could just have our musicians village and just live together and just live these pieces all the time. But that's just not the way things are. So we have to find a way to keep doing the thing that we love as well as we can. I think a lot of people would just say, oh, it's this is so hard, it's impossible. And they wouldn't take the step to be like, no, what can I do to make this possible? Yeah, well, approaching the impossible is the fun part. <laughs> totally. Do you want to talk about some other projects that you have in the works or that you've done recently that people should check out that you're really excited about? Well, we we already mentioned uh, Motorman Fragments as the very first piece that Taylor wrote for me. And The Machine Stops is the newest piece that Taylor wrote for me, along with the fantastic piano percussion group Yarnwire. Oh, whoa. Um, I think that's still on the America's Society webpage. Yeah, you can get it on the America Society website as well as their YouTube channel has that concert streaming still. Awesome. So check that out. That's an E.M. Forster sci-fi short story that Taylor's done an incredible, beautiful monodrama setting of for me. I'm really proud of that piece. I'm also looking at future plans in the microtonal realm around revisiting some historical microtonal works. So a composer that I didn't know about for a long time, but whose music I've really grown to love is Ivan Vishnogradsky. He's a composer who wrote all different kinds of microtonal music, including a, a piano sextet called Arc-en-Ciel or Rainbow, that is, I think, just some of the most beautiful microtonal music ever written. Wow, cool. Taylor, your dissertation piece that I read for is in part an analysis of Haas's piece for six pianos in that same tuning. So it must be, again, my connection to you and to this music that had me thinking about it. 
but he has some earlier pieces for two pianos tuned a quarter tone apart and baritone. So between that and the piece that we did, the America Society, I've been thinking about doing a recital for multiple microtonal pianos and voice. So sort of bizarro leader abend kind of thing. So I'm I'm poking around for repertoire and thinking about what we might do. And, you know, this this will probably constitute the next collaboration for me and Taylor, which will be piece number seven. Yeah, we always have to have another one in the pipe, like down the road. Yeah, yeah. There's always there's always at least one in the works at any given moment. Sweet. I want to hear more about that piece for Jeff and Yarnwire. Sure. I mean, I can I can talk about it a little bit. A lot of the pieces that I have with voice have the singer also doing a lot of spoken word, as you know, Charlotte as well, of course. Oh, yes. Yes. So the, the um, I, I really enjoy early 20th century science fiction. Uh, so Star Maker is from that era from the late 30s, as well as this E.M. Forster short story called The Machine Stops. I read this, the short story, which is totally bizarre compared to the rest of E.M. Forster's writing. Like he's not known as a science fiction writer, but he has this one science fiction novella where society has used up all the resources of the world and everyone has had to move underground and they live in this machine where everything's automated. Everyone's in their own little chamber and everyone communicates through these plates that they hold up, which are basically like video feeds. And there's a lot of like really obvious parallels to our current moment, of course, with people communicating almost exclusively through Zoom. <laughs> and becoming alienated from one another, and of course the environmental side of it as well, which is part of the story. I found it very interesting, and I wanted to tell the story through this piece. And so it's not the entire short story, but it kind of excerpts it in a way that hopefully captures a lot of the important themes of it. And Jeff sort of goes back and forth between delivering the narrative text singing and speaking as the characters in the novel, and he's accompanied by this percussion duo and piano duo and the, the pianists are playing midi keyboards and they uh, have different tunings that they perform in so there's eight unique tunings that the piano switch between and each tuning is kind of representative of a different theme in the book so there's a major dichotomy in the book between sort of being inside the machine and being outside on the surface of the earth and so there's there are tunings that represent inside and outside. There's a tuning that represents the machine. There's a tuning that represents humanity. So that that's basically the idea of, of the piece. And it, the performance that Jeff gave of it with Yarn Wire back in early November is fantastic. I love the uh, the fact that in your music I get to sing and speak and shout and sort of half sing and and do do all these different things with my voice it's always so satisfying to have the full range of of what i can do like i've i've gotten pieces before where it's like all i'm doing is talking oh man that's it's kind of a bummer like i know how to sing you know <laughs> where i get a piece and it's just just singing with no text it's just ah on long notes and it's like ah it's not like it's not like everything I can do, but I feel like your your music really fulfills such a wide range of the possibilities of, of using the voice. It's always really satisfying. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I totally agree about that with Taylor's vocal writing. I was thinking as you were describing that, it's so cool, the different tunings representing different areas or different themes. Did you do a similar thing in Star Maker Fragments? Do each of the different planets have a different tuning system? 
in Star Maker or did you approach it differently? Sort of. So I, uh, I have a terrible memory, first of all. I would have to go back and look in detail. But I'm pretty sure that Star in Star Maker, I had more of a modal approach to it. So basically, I laid out a single scale. And then I, for different sections to sort of capture different moods, I either cut up the scale or took subsets of the scale. Sort of like you have the you know 12 notes on the piano and, and you can sort of take six of them to make a, a scale or seven or eight or whatever it is. And then using rotations as well. So what am I treating as the tonic at this given moment? And so that's a very common approach, of course. We see that with church modes. We see that with all sorts of different music traditions around the world. And But in terms of microtonality, that's the approach that Harry Parch also uses, which I've taken a lot from Harry Parch's approach to how to use microtonality. And so, yeah, in Star Maker, it was less that there were distinct tunings, uh, but more that um, there was this pool of notes that would be treated in different ways. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me to, to create parallels with common practice tonality that are, you know, moved into the microtonal realm and where you get this wonderful sort of familiar and strange sensation that happens. And so treating a tuning as a chord and creating progressions of tunings or creating chord progressions that sound functional, but in a microtonal context. These are the some of the things I was doing in, in, in Star Maker. But with Star Maker also, a lot of the time I was quite free. Good, I'm glad I didn't miss a huge structural feature. <laughs> Did you have any uh, thoughts that sparked over the course of the conversation that you wanna like follow the thread on or anything? I, I think it'd be interesting to note that your uh, Virtute Sacolte, the six piano piece, that's on the same fundamental as the Lamont Young uh, well-tuned piano that you mentioned earlier, right? Right. So Virtute Sacolte is what it's called, which is obscure virtues or virtues of the occult. It can be translated in different ways. It's Latin. So the piece is for six pianos, uh, which has been, was first realized entirely digitally Um back in 2017 and then was recently performed at Timespans Contemporary Music Festival using six digital keyboards and six you know real live players and like a lot of my pieces I like to have like tributes to composers and and writers and artists baked into them and so th this one I felt was it was very fitting to have uh, a root of E flat throughout the entire thing and it's a big piece it's about 90 minutes long and um, there's this root of E flat, which is a reference to Lamont Young's well-tuned piano. So going back to that, that early sort of life-changing piece. And I would say just get a, a blanket and a, and a mug of tea and settle in and listen straight through Virtutes Occulte. It'll change your life. Mm -hmm. That piece has been really interesting for me because this was, this was a piece that I, I wrote it all in a, on a MIDI roll right, in a DAW. Sometimes I would algorithmically generate stuff in Max MSP and then bring it in and edit it. Sometimes I would just sort of click around on the MIDI roll. And so I sort of built this piece working on it in my free time, often sort of late at night, over the course of a really, really long time, over a year for sure. Everything else that I've done has been like, well, I have this opportunity with this commission to, or to have a, this performer or this ensemble play my music. And this was like, you know, a, a piece that's like a sort of a pure passion project. And this was sort of the first piece like that. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why, but there was a period around the start of the pandemic, I think it was around February, March, 2020, where the YouTube algorithm blessed this piece. <laughs> and suddenly it was getting like thousands of listens a day. Amazing. And maybe it was suggested after, there are a few 
actually a few very good music theory YouTubers that sometimes talk about microtonality. So I, I suspect there was one of those sort of pushed this on the viewers after they finished their microtonality uh, video. So why I bring this up is the YouTube comments on this piece has become like a window for me into how people who aren't necessarily musicians at all hear and understand this music and hear and understand this microtonality. And you get just absolutely wild comments. The comments are so fun. I love reading them. I look, I'm looking at the page right now. There's one that says, it can't help but sound psychedelic, like the music is trying to break a natural taboo and cause a rift in space. <laughs> wow, that's actually a great review. <laughs> this just sounds like Guitar Center on any business island <laughs> like Christmas. And it's, and it's interesting because, yeah, there's a lot of people being like, hey, yo, this sounds like shit. I, I mean, I appreciate more the Guitar Center joke than just saying this sounds like shit, but there'll then be like a dialogue that happens between sort of defenders and detractors, you know, even starting to discuss what should art be? Should music always be pleasant? Is music art? Like the, these things are sort of in the background. And so, yeah, anyway, I found it absolutely fascinating. Ultimately with the microtonality, I find it interesting in and of itself, but it's important to me how it communicates to people who are not obsessed with it just because of, you know, whether it be the numbers or the theory or how it feels to perform. I'm just glad that it was on your piece uh, that I wasn't performing on. I don't know if I... <laughs> I'm not as glad to read YouTube comments about myself, but those ones sound really interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it hurts, it hurts, ah, in all caps. <laughs> My favorite one right now from a couple of weeks ago was, it goes, random person, what key is this in? Taylor Brooke, no. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And Jeff, often when Akmele's rehearses at your apartment on breaks, will like watch weird and wonderful YouTube videos. Do you have any recent finds that you want to share with our Talk Editions podcast audience? Man, that's a really good question. Um, there's a constant flow of digital nonsense going on. I would just say, actually, rather than YouTube, that you should just go to the uh, twitch.tv for the Marine Mammal Rescue Center in Vancouver. They have a lot of great otters on their Twitch channel. Aww. Oh, that's cute. It's really cute. I, and I can walk down to the end of my street and see the otters in person now. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. Now I actually do need to come visit you. I was going to to see your you know, family and talk to you in person. But now we got otters also. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, otters. Okay. Um, cool. Well, maybe that's a good place to end the conversation. <laughs> Great. This has been Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 23 with Jeffrey Gavitt. Check our show notes for links to various recordings and softwares that we mentioned in this episode. And if you haven't already heard star maker fragments go to bandcamp.com and check it out give it a listen and if you are inclined to purchase it if you're listening to this on or around march 1st 2022 this friday would be a great time to purchase it because bandcamp is having a special bandcamp friday where they waive all of their fees and talk will get 100 percent of whatever proceeds come through our bandcamp page Thank you again to Jeff for coming on the podcast. Thank you to our listeners. Please consider leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and maybe posting about us on Twitter. Shout out to Lone Wick on Twitter, 
who recently posted that they had ordered the CD of Star Maker Fragments and then also gave a little plug for the Talk Editions podcast, saying here's a great interview with the composer and artist, referring to episode 16 of the podcast. Thanks, Lone Wick. This episode was produced and edited by me, Charlotte Mundy. Thanks for listening. Strange that it seems more, not less urgent to play some part in this struggle 